Good afternoon, Todd. <laughs> Good afternoon. Yeah. Ooh, belty. We're like belting it. today. We are belting. The sun is shining in Los Angeles. That's good. I just received my hate chicken. Yeah. I don't know if everybody knows what that is necessarily. It's Chick-fil-A. It's because they're homophobic. Yeah. yeah. So just so you know, he's not like, he didn't hate the chicken and he's not. No. No. Didn't kill the chicken. Chicken didn't come after him. No, it was just that's what we call it here. I really shouldn't be supporting them, but I'm starving. It's down the street from my house, and there are gay people that work there, so I'm supporting their salary. Exactly. So this is you know, there's a loophole in here in this whole thing. So I think we'll justify anything for chicken. Yeah, <laughs> especially <laughs> delicious hate chicken. Exactly. What have you been up to, my love? We did a podcast yesterday. We did a podcast today. We got another one coming up on Friday. Yeah, that's so this is my life now. That's all we do is podcasts. Either way, <laughs> not that much that's super interesting. Just, you know, living that single mom life. Living that single mom dream. What have you been up to? Living that single mom dream. No, <laughs> I am. <laughs> News to me. I really, really, really was excited about this guest today for several personal reasons. But just, you know, you read her book and you couldn't put it down. And yeah. yeah. She's just like a necessary, she's a, the evangelist we need in the world to go out and tell, to warn people of what we have discussed quite a few times on this podcast, mm-hmm. but not, not nearly this kind of in-depth other than yeah. with, other when, with, Tina. with Tina Swithin, which was also amazing, both two incredibly strong people. And, you know, Aaron was just, or our guest was just Amazing. And I think it's going to be just enjoyable for everybody, even though it's not like a sexy topic. It's I think it's fascinating. It is. I think it's it's fascinating. And it's also kind of like a giant warning yeah. <laughs> to everyone out there. And I think it's right now very culturally relevant as people are becoming more aware of yeah. this. We were talking about thing. this, like this thing with Scandaval and with Vanderpump Rules. And oh, how the they, Randall scandal. Yeah, and they're la painting. La. They're, they're saying that Tom Sandoval is a narcissist and, you know. I have my doubts about that one, but yeah, you're like, he's just pretty and just I mean, made a nice stupid mistake. Yeah. I don't know. I don't times. know if it was a mistake. It seemed pretty intentional, but it, like, you know, we don't know what all of his other behaviors are. So yeah, that's, what, that's what she said on the program. She was like, Ariana said, it didn't happen. You did it. Mm, <laughs> Something yes. didn't happen. You, cause he was like, he's like, I'm sorry that happened. <laughs> She's like, nothing <laughs> happened. You did it. <laughs> oh, I accidentally slipped and fell inside of her. My bad. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all our fellow Bravo watchers will understand what we're talking about, but for us, you go look it up. Exactly. And will you please tell our listeners about Aaron Riley? I would be happy to. All right. So celebrated music maven Aaron Riley looked like she had it all, a 1960s Mad Men style upbringing on the Manhattan's Upper West Side, then an escape to find herself in glamorous 1970s Hollywood, where she landed some of the most influential positions of the 1980s music industry. She hung out with rock stars like Keith Richards, Steven Tyler, James Taylor, and John Bon Jovi, and chose hit records for America's number one rock and roll radio station, WMMR-FM. But her colorful rock and roll life hit dark secrets, an emotionally neglected child with a generational legacy of stoicism and hiding painful truths. Aaron had no real experience with love and healthy relationships. The marriage she thought would be her happily ever after led to 20 years of confusion, heartbreak, anger, and betrayal, all fueled by a malignant covert narcissist. Aaron's honest, searing memoir recounts her self-discovery journey through a series of life's traumas and tragedies, her many bad decisions and two toxic marriages. 
Her story will bring insight and guidance to survivors of narcissistic abuse and those questioning their relationships and the hope that they, like Aaron, can find a joyous rock and roll redemption. So without further ado, I give you Aaron Riley. Well, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Yes. Good afternoon, Aaron. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Laura and Todd. Thank you for having me on your show. Absolutely. Oh. We're so honored to have you on. Laura and I have been very, very excited to have you on and, and we have so much to get through, but we're just going to dive right in. Can you please give us a little bit of background about yourself, where you grew up and what brought you to where you are today? Oh, well, since I'm going to be 64 years old in July, that, could, that, could, <laughs> that could take a little bit of time. So I will try to be as succinct as possible. You drank the death becomes her potion. <laughs> yes, clearly. <laughs> I'm selling that on my website too. <laughs> <laughs> I was born and raised in Manhattan in 1959. I was born, so it's quite a long time ago. And I lived in Manhattan in the 60s, in the Upper West Side. My mother was a fashion model, kind of a big fancy couture, you know, high-end designer dresses and whatnot, working with all the big designers. And my father was an actor, but he wasn't a particularly successful actor. He spent more time, you know, hanging out at the bar with the other actors. (laughs) 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 You know, the ones that weren't on on the set at the time. Yeah. Right. Right. Anyway, I was raised in a rather unconventional way. I was kind of, I consider myself the original latchkey kid. Both of my parents were working, which was not always the case in the 60s. So I was left to my own devices all the time. I had a younger brother, (laughs) and both of us could come and go from the apartment whenever we wanted to. I could ride the bus down to Greenwich Village for dance class when I was six or seven years old. Nobody was worried about us. Wow. A little bit safer in Manhattan back then in the 60s than it became in the 70s and years later. But either way, the point I want to make is that without having parents paying attention to you or giving you guidance as a child, you grow up to be rather what they call hypervigilant, you know? So I'm in Manhattan and I got all kinds of crazy stuff going on around me and I'm developing eyes in the back of my head. You know, I'm just so aware with my mind of how to keep myself safe, basically. So by doing that, I had to kind of push down my heart and my feelings and whatnot. I had to stay kind of super duper aware. And being raised like that sort of, I guess, set me up to be, I don't know, (laughs) snatched up by some narcissistic people in my life because I couldn't really feel my feelings as well. So because I had this very strong brain, I would go straight to my head. You know, I'd go straight to my head and rationalize everything. Oh, they couldn't, you know, be that way, or they're probably just having a bad day or making excuses for other people. So my young life really set me up to be not prepared to be in a good relationship at all when I was older. After Manhattan, we went to New Jersey for a while. My father had promised my mother that he could quit drinking if we'd get out of the city. So she had to give him that chance. And we went to central New Jersey. And a lot of bad stuff happened to me as well there too. No parents still in high school. So a lot of really rough stuff happened. And uh, it's outlined in the book that I wrote. But then, you know, my life was so bad, I thought I just need to run away from it all. And that I did. I moved to California by myself when I was a teenager, right after high school and did a couple semesters of college. And I went to Los Angeles and I was, had the great fortune to break into the music business. I was dating a radio DJ, and I would go to work with him. 
And I asked him one day, I said, hey, Jerry, how hard is it to do this? And he said, a trained monkey could do it, Aaron. So I thought, oh, that's for me. I'm going to do this. So I became a radio DJ. And I did that for many years. I became a radio programmer and I worked in the music business. I worked for the Grammys. I worked, you know, for major labels, record labels. I worked for big major market radio stations. You'd think I had it all going on, right? I've got good jobs. I have good self-esteem. I have a lot of friends. I have a lot of respect, right? But relationship after relationship is not working out. My first husband was alcoholic, and my second husband turned out to be a covert narcissist. I would never have seen any of that coming. I wouldn't have known what to look for. He seemed quiet, kind of unassuming and helpful, kind of agreeable. He'd just be like, like this, kind of a nice, easygoing kind of guy. And I thought to myself, geez, Aaron, you don't know how to pick the right guy. You just don't know what you're doing. You pick an alcoholic, you pick this one, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that. Why don't you just try this guy? He's completely different than anybody you ever met in the music business. You know, he's not overt. He's not like sucking up all the air in the room. He's not aggressive or assertive. He's a quiet, shy, helpful guy. He's always helping me with broken things at the house. He's reliable. He's on time, doesn't talk too much. I'm thinking that's probably husband material. You know, Mm. I just don't know how to do this. So I let this guy pick me. And boy, did he pick me. He made sure that I knew that he wasn't leaving. He wasn't leaving me alone. He wanted me. And that's what they call in the world of toxic relationships, love bombing. So, mm, yes. Yep. Grandiose gestures, all of the things. Yeah. And we're going to definitely dive into some of that because I think a lot of our listeners know that we have a fascination with narcissism and have discussed it previously. But this is such a fascinating, I mean, obviously a bittersweet kind of story that you've written about in your book. And, and I kind of want to go back a little bit to your childhood as far as you know, you said that your parents weren't really around, but in your book, you definitely referenced that when they were, you know, your dad was an alcoholic, your mom was kind of seemingly a little bit narcissistic herself, mm-hmm. and that you were, you know, in a way, there was all these parties and stuff going on around you while yeah. you were left in a playpen to, you know, fend for yourself, essentially. So, you know, obviously that kind of set you up for, like you said, ripe to be a target. But how do you kind of believe generational trauma created this dysfunctional cycle in your family to begin with? Well, let me just say, I also wanted attention, you know, more than anything, because I didn't get attention or love from my parents. They were busy doing their own thing. And I'm, you know, running around the streets in New York City by myself. So that's another way I was susceptible to be love bombed by a narcissist. You're correct. My mother was very selfish and very manipulative and somewhat narcissistic. And I don't think I really realized that. I always knew she was cold and she was withholding of affection and whatnot, but I never really thought of her as a narcissist. It was easier for me to point the finger at my father and say, well, your dad's alcoholic. Look, he's drunk. That's a problem. So it's what I would say to myself, the reason why I didn't have good relationships was because maybe because my father was alcoholic and he was emotionally unavailable to me. But when I wrote the book, that's when I started to piece it all together. And I started to realize that the most impactful thing that ever happened to me as a result of being raised by those two people is that my mother would ignore me or stonewall me. So when I would ask her a question like, hey, mom, hey, mom, you know, she would just look the other way. 
Okay. Well, that became acceptable to me. So when I tried to speak to either of my husbands, and especially my second husband, he would just look the other way or roll his eyes. And I would say to myself, well, you can't make somebody answer you. I can't force him to answer me. And I would walk mm -hmm. away. But that was tolerance of that kind of subtle but abusive behavior. Now, my mom got that from her mom. That's that generational trauma you're talking about, you know, and she got that from her mom. And I don't know how much farther we can go back. Yeah. My great grandmother gave birth to 15 children Holy and, cow. or 14 children, and she lost five of them, right? So she had nine. So when my grandmother lost a child, she went to her mom and said, you know, she was heartbroken. She lost a child. She said, so you, I lost five. What's a big deal? You know? Oh my gosh. I still got nine. You got two. What are you complaining about? That kind of an attitude of like martyrdom and, you know, disconnection from your real emotions and real grieving and things that are important part of emotional processing for people. So my great grandmother didn't teach my grandmother how to process difficult emotions Therefore, my grandmother had no tools to teach my mother that. And additionally, my mother's father came down with multiple sclerosis when he was about 35. My mother was only seven years old. So my mother and her sister, who were both children at the time, had to take care of themselves because grandma had to go to work in a meatpacking factory and stuff sausages for money so that they could eat. But, you know, so my mom didn't have any loving guidance from her mother and therefore had no tools to impart onto me. And it's been my life's work to try and break that cycle. I'm the generational trauma breaker in my family and do better by my son, Julian, who is doing a lot better, you know, because he's learning how to stick up for himself and how to actually recognize that he has a self to protect. Yeah. I do love that in the book, how you do mention that he's very, I don't know, kind of wise or sage, as mm -hmm. you say. And also that just was such a brought back the part in the book for me where you mentioned that your mom went, like left your dad and took y'all up to your grandmother's and your grandmother basically kicked y'all out and yeah. was like, look, I had to deal with multiple sclerosis. Like, you know, that my husband had that. So you can go back to your alcoholic husband. You, what are you doing here? So it was of your real true emotions, completely dismissive. Another way to be set up to be abused by a narcissist who is very dismissive of you and your needs. Yeah. And a people like you basically become kind of a people pleaser from that situation too, because you want the attention or affection or anything really. Yeah. And you walk on eggshells around the person because, you know, you don't want to wake a sleeping bear or whatever. But yeah, if you don't work out your childhood traumas or your family generational childhood traumas, you're just doomed to repeat them over and over and over again through your adult relationships with people. Well, let's go to your, in your teens, you then went on to do some pretty risky things, some shoplifting, breaking out and driving drunk, generally hanging out with basically the wrong crowd in high school. During this time, you were a victim of rape. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that you have ever truly healed from that experience? That'd be the heaviest question anybody's ever asked me. I mean that. I'm pretty open about, you know, fearless about talking about things that have happened to me. But mm -hmm. to answer your question, Todd, no, I don't. And I'll tell you why. I'm always a little bit guarded around men when I first meet them. I don't feel safe when I first meet many men. 
And then they have to kind of like show me that they could be trustworthy, you know, and show me that they're safe. Right. And I don't have that response to women. So I'm going to say yes, you know, that I think that that impacted me more than I ever realized, because let me just to clarify, it was a rape, but it was someone I knew, you know, it was a boy in my high school where I'm 15, he's 17. You know, he just had a lot of teenage testosterone going on. It wasn't like he was trying to, I knew him. So I didn't really even acknowledge it at the time as a rape. But as I got older, you know, some of my friends helped me to realize that that is what happened. You know, I didn't expect it, didn't want it, didn't even know it was happening when it happened. And I had to, you know, process that. But the worst part of it is, you know, he told people in school, told all the other boys and all the other boys started asking me out. And next thing you know, I gained 70 pounds from eating donuts because that's a good way to keep boys away from you when you're a teenager is gain 70 pounds. It's a shield. It's an armor. Yeah, it's protection. Big trauma. Yeah. And I mean, I think that also makes you, you would think that with the hypervigilance and being very hesitant around men that you would almost be like, able to spot a narcissist a mile away, but it's almost the exact opposite opposite. because you're so guarded and they will wait. Like they will act Mm -hmm. like that perfect person that you are so afraid of, like the opposite of what you're afraid of and Mm -hmm. kind of take advantage of that. So they're gentle, aren't they? They're gentle. And at the beginning, they're gentle. And like you said, shy and welcoming, and they know the right buzzwords to say to get you to feel comfortable. Yeah, they're studying you. So if I gave off, you know, if I told my husband anything about my high school experiences, he would go, okay, and collecting information. Yeah. How can I appear safe and, you know, get closer to this person so that I can get what it is that they want? But that's the way they think very transactionally. Like you're telling me something very private and very emotional and I'm collecting that to be able to use that to my advantage. And I think yeah. while giving you sympathy here is what I was talking <laughs> about, that disconnect between your brain and between your heart. Like you were saying, Laura, you'd think you would be able to recognize a narcissist, but because they're wearing the mask and behaving, you know, in exactly the way that they know you need them to behave and your gut is turned off, you're turned off down here, you know, you will override your feeling. Yeah. So if you get an off kind of feeling with a person and you're like, something's not adding up here, either this person, I think they're lying to me or something's just not feeling right. But with a person who is very hypervigilant, they will rationalize that very quickly and make excuses for it. And look, I'm not just saying me, everybody does that. Right. Mm-hmm. So I just want to tell people, trust your gut because your gut is sort of like your internal radar system will tell you that you're with a person that's not safe, right? But you have to be able to tune into what you're feeling and slow down enough to be able to ask yourself, what am I feeling? So I was not really very good at that. I was very fast to just say, oh, that never happened or whatever, that's not a problem or I can just work with that so I could keep it going and maybe, you know, get what I needed out of it, which is, you know, some better understanding of how I relate to other people. Yeah, it sounds a lot like, you know, basically operating in survival mode at all times. And so that makes your gut very hard to feel when you're like your heart's racing and you're, you know, you can't trust every little feeling that you have in your body. So you kind of just dismiss it. So 
I guess before you met your second husband, who you you call Fabio, Fabio. in your book, you actually married your husband, who you call Stephen, beforehand. And so what kind of happened in that marriage and what made that relationship so toxic, do you think? Well, my first marriage to Stephen, Stephen was, you know, just a little carbon copy of my dad. You know, like mm-hmm. I said, if you don't work out your stuff from childhood that's unresolved and whatnot, you're just going to find a way to do it, you know, in your adult relationships. You know, some people mic are drop. Aaron, that was a mic drop having <laughs> loving parents or feeling, yeah, at least even if they had parents that had some strife and whatnot, at least feeling seen and heard by their parents, loved and appreciated and protected. So if I did not have that, so I just went after, you know, I married my father first and my mother second. Yay. (laughs) But it's a lot easier to tell when you're married to an alcoholic, you can say, that's the problem. Just like I would point at my father and say, that's the problem, right? So Stephen had some good narcissistic tricks. He sure knew how to triangulate and blame shift and twist things around. It was very intelligent, but it was a lot easier to see what was wrong because he might be passed out on the couch. You know, so at some point when you see that enough times you say, that's not good for the kids. That's not good for me. I'm going to get away from that. Right. So that marriage only lasted five and a half years, but I didn't deal with my stuff in it. I didn't deal with any of my stuff. And one of the things we hadn't talked about yet is somewhere in between those things, the high school and marrying the first husband, I had a huge career in the music business. Right. Yeah. So I'm meeting rock stars and I'm programming radio stations. I work for the Grammys. I'm working for labels and managing artists and living alone. And you would think I was the kind of person that could see these things. I was smart. I was successful. I had friends. You know, I could take care of myself. I didn't need somebody else to take care of me. But what I needed was to feel seen, to feel loved, to feel cared for. And so I was tricked by someone who knew how to trick a person into believing that that was their intention. Like I said, it's all intentional and transactional, non-emotional with a narcissist. So I had the misfortune of meeting one of those at the wrong time in my life. I was 40 years old and you would think I couldn't be taken advantage of by somebody like that because I seemed to be doing just fine on my own. But what was? But if you were was, doing all of that, you were shiny. You were shiny to Yeah, them. that's what I was going to say. You're almost like appealing to that mm-hmm. kind of personality that's because that's what they because want. Because you're a reflect. They want you to be a reflection of how they want to be perceived. You are absolutely right, Todd. Absolutely right. And at the time that I met my second husband, the covert narcissist Fabio, I owned my home outright. I was working, you know, at a, I want to say at a theater, and then I was working for the Grammy Awards. And so I look good. I have a career. I have money. I own my home. Mm -hmm. I have friends. And so, yeah, I was definitely appealing to this person. But you would think, see, it sounds so normal when we talk about it, because anybody looking at another person to see whether or not they find that person appealing is looking at what they have, going, well, you know, is this person attractive to me? You know, do they have stuff going on with themselves? Are they interesting and interested? But with a narcissist, it goes further or it sort of presents in a different way as what does that person have that I can take? Not so much like what do you have that makes you appealing, but what do you have that, like you said, makes me look better? 
makes me look like a normal person that's married to somebody who has a lot going on. That brings me up a level. Right. Sure. And you were just mentioned Fabio. So after Stephen, you married Fabio, who is basically the primary focus of your book. And your book is called A Dark Force, 20 Years with a Covert Narcissist. So, you know, we've already established for everybody, spoiler alert, that Fabio is a narcissist. How did you end up? How did you end up in that relationship? And what were some of the first red flags that you saw that you were talking about your gut earlier that you saw that you felt it, but you you didn't know? Mm, what were some of the first red flags that you saw? First date. First date, mm. there were three red flags. And I just oh. I tell. skated right over top of them. So on our very first date, we met on Match.com. It was a blind date. I was working at that theater. And he came to meet me for lunch. And we were going to go out for sushi. So that's my favorite sushi restaurant. I want to share my favorite sushi restaurant with him. And he was like, okay, that sounds good. We get to the sushi restaurant. I order all my favorites. And he's sitting there studying the menu for like 10 minutes. Like, I would have thought that he already knew what he liked at a sushi restaurant. You know, that would be my assumption. I want two yellowtail and I want a this and a that or whatever. He just kept looking at that menu. And when the waiter came over, he said, I'll have three orders of fatty tuna. And I thought, boy, it took 10 minutes to just figure out one thing. 10 minutes. So that was just a little weird, you know, just felt a little odd, but I skated right over that because it's not a big deal. Like, okay, whatever. Just maybe he's not really decisive. You know, my brain going and like making excuses for him. Well, so then we're sitting there with our sushi in front of us and I'm eating and talking and he's hanging on my every word. He's like, so interesting. You're so interesting. And he's drinking me in. Right. Well, he didn't touch his sushi. Not the entire time. I'm talking and eating, talking and eating, and talking and eating, nothing, nothing. So at the end of lunch, when they came to clear the plates, I said, wait a minute, hold on a second. He didn't even start his. And he goes, oh, I'm fine. I had a big breakfast. Now that felt weird too, right? That's kind of a weird thing. Like, first of all, my question is, if you knew you were coming out to lunch on a date with me, why would you have a big breakfast? You know, or if you had a big breakfast, why'd you order lunch? Why didn't you just say to me, Oh, listen, I had a big breakfast. I really am not hungry right now. I'm so sorry. I couldn't wait. I'll just have a cup of tea and, and you have whatever you want, right? That yeah. would be a normal way to do that because he said, I'll have the fatty tuna and it sat there and all of it was just not adding up. Then I went over and took him over to the theater to show him around, you know, the backstage area and whatnot. I thought he might enjoy seeing that. And one of my workers in the box office came out and was having a big emergency, like, oh, we need your help. The computer's down and we need your, you know, come fix this software. We can't sell any tickets. And I'm like, okay, okay, I'll be there in a second. Hold on a second. I'm on a date and whatever. Turn around, look, gone. Date is gone. Just gone. Didn't tap me on the shoulder. You would think somebody would say, anybody with normal social graces would have said, look at Todd's eyes. (laughs) Todd's like, I know. That like I I buried that story from the yeah. book almost like that he just disappeared. That's just so crazy. Disappeared. And I thought to myself, well, no tap on the shoulder, no goodbye, nothing. He's just gone. And I thought, oh, see, that was weird. You know, he was weird. That was kind of a weird guy. He must not have liked me. That's what mm. I figured. And he just couldn't figure out how to like get out of the date. Lucky him, this guy interrupted me and he's out of there. And I was a little confused by it, and I thought the date had gone well. But then when I went home, there was a voicemail message from him saying, I'm so sorry I left. Seemed really busy. I really enjoyed our lunch, and I'd love to see you again. And that just made me feel better. 
You know, I was like, oh, I feel better now. I feel like, oh, he did like me. I am lovable. <laughs> oh, yeah. he likes me. So I agreed to see him a second time. And, you know, I pushed away those negative feelings and made excuses for them. Oh, blah, 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 da, 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 da. Well, I continued that for many years, many, many, many long years until it became inevitable that, you know, things had really changed and had gotten quite terrifying. So we'll get to that at some point. But yeah, I dated Fabio for five years before I married him. You'd think I would have figured it out in that period of time too, but I just kept doing what I do, which is making excuses. You probably knew. You say you figured it out. I think you just probably, you knew and you just finally accepted who he was. Or maybe probably just made excuses for who he was. Yeah, exactly. Uh, or, you know, as far as not wanting to believe that. Exactly. And I, do, I don't think it's that weird that you wouldn't figure it out before getting married or anything like that. Because it does seem to be with like a covert narcissist. It seems a little obvious. So I guess that like leads me to... You know, you, you were with him for 20 years. You finally figure out he's a covert narcissist. Could you kind of tell our listeners what exactly a covert narcissist is as opposed to an overt narcissist? Well, I'll do my best. You know, let me just yeah. tell you, they're exactly the same, except for you can see one coming and the other one you can't see coming. So an overt narcissist is what we're more used to hearing about and seeing, you know, somebody who is got sort of a loud personality is draws a lot of attention to themselves, comes off as pretty arrogant, you know, acting like they're better than other people. Maybe they don't listen to others, step all, all over you, and, and you're like, oh, God, that person. But to be honest, I didn't really even know that narcissism was a real disorder before he even left, and we'll talk about that. But I didn't even know it was real, like schizophrenia or borderline personality disorder. I always thought narcissist was a phrase that you would use to describe your micromanaging boss. Like, oh, she's mm -hmm. such a narcissist, right? I had no idea that it was a real clinical syndrome of behavior patterns that are pervasive. So all narcissists have a lack of empathy. They don't have, talk about not having feelings, not because they're squelched down, because they actually really don't have them. You know, wherever is the center in their brain, you know, that is responsible for empathy has either been damaged by a childhood trauma or perhaps in birth for whatever reason, they don't feel those feelings. And so they think more transactionally between others. What can they get out of an interaction with a person? You know, so they're studying people. And you may not see it, you know, you're just having a regular conversation with somebody and you think it's going well and you're thinking, oh, I'm getting to know this person. And they're thinking, okay, let me just, you know, get this list of things together that I can either get from this person or use against this person in the future. So they don't think the same way that we do. Most people think, think and follow the golden rule, right? It's sort of like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know, you know, if something terrible happens to you, you wouldn't want that to happen to another person. You don't want to happen to you. So you try to protect other people. A narcissist mantra is more like kill or be killed, right? And really, I want to say in ways through no fault of their own, they either have this deficit or they were raised in a way to believe that that's the way to be. And they think you're doing it too. So they think that we're thinking 
how am I going to get over on this person? How am I going to get the upper hand? How am I going to take advantage? Okay, because that's how they think. So we're thinking they're thinking like us, and they think that we think like them. And mm-hmm. it's the opposite. It really is the opposite. And so much damage can be done. So the behavior of a covert narcissist would be they are passive aggressive. So you'll get a lot of passive aggressive comments from them. Certainly, they project their own internal misery upon you, and you will get blamed for things that you're not doing. So if you're ever being blamed for things you're not doing, they're doing it, right? That's projection. They triangulate others against each other. You know, they might triangulate two people against each other, meaning they'll say one thing to this person and one thing to this person, and then watch you two go at it. So they feel powerful because they're controlling the narrative They generally have deep self-loathing and they need to project their deep self-loathing onto others. So they have to have a partner or they call that a source of supply, but they also want to be liked out in the real world. So they're going to have that false mask, you know, and they're going Mm -hmm. to sort of develop a persona that they can show to the outside world about what a great person they are. So what you hear as a victim of a narcissist is, Oh, your partner, your wife, your husband is such a lovely person, so helpful, you know, so sweet and thoughtful, and they adore you. And you're thinking, doesn't feel like that at home. They might even tell you, I love you. And you're like, I don't feel loved. What's wrong here? Right? You know, and they're sneaky. You know, they're sneaky. They probably cheat, porn, steal. They probably have separate bank accounts. Mine had separate PO boxes. As time went on, you started to recognize some of the traits you were just talking about of a covert narcissist, but without the label quite yet. What were some of the things you experienced in your marriage that once you looked back, supported this finding of covert narcissism? Well, let's see. My husband had a phrase that he used to say pretty regularly, and and we all thought it was a joke. He would say, it's tough being in the top 2% surrounded by the lower 98 So that kind of arrogance, but there were many different things that happened. He was very antisocial. You know, he would always, he would just stand in the corner at parties with his arms folded, sort of observing the crowd. And I'd say, why aren't you talking to anybody? And he said, well, I have to stand watch watch her in case somebody tries to attack you. Oh my God. That is so scary. Right. But this is instilling fear in you. So I used to just dismiss it. And I thought, well, if you want to be that way, go ahead, weirdo, you know, and I'm not going to let that bother me. And I would say that over and over again until, I don't know, it just, yeah, it bothered me so much that my husband was antisocial and arrogant and dismissive and rolled his eyes. But I thought of all those different characteristics as separate till I put it all together. So Aaron, was he fun ever? No. Was he a fun person? Never. He was never fun. Never fun. He was funny at times very intelligent and had a sort of dry sense of humor. So he might throw in a one-liner somewhere that would usually get a pretty good laugh, but no, he wasn't fun or playful. The only playful thing I ever saw him do was he would ride the shopping cart at Costco. And I would think, oh, she was like that more often. You know, that's, that was cute to see him, but no, very, very serious, very dour, what they call blunted affect. You've heard of that blunted affect. Mm -mm. What is that? No, no reaction. Like no response in the face at all. Because then they're not giving away anything about themselves or how they're feeling or any of it. So it's a protective kind of thing. That's what they all do. They're not giving, keep that in mind too. When people are, are, you're sharing with a person and you're sharing, you know, stuff about yourself, 
and they seem to be acknowledging it and listening to it, but they're not sharing anything about themselves. That's that collecting information I'm talking about Mm -hmm. so that they can use it against you in the future. Yeah, that's definitely like, I think that that is, that was just kind of eerie. That really rings true with the several narcissists that I've dealt with. And it's, you know, I guess whether covert or overt, I don't think they realize and they must not realize that that in of itself is weird to people that right. it throws people off. Like they don't like that. And that, you know, I've had people even say like, well, that was always just kind of bizarre. And it's like, well, you think you're not giving anything away, but by being that way, you're kind of being obviously a weirdo. So you eventually, which I think is pretty amazing, were able to get Fabio psychoanalyzed, which is, you know, extremely rare for a narcissist to agree to that and or even, you know, entertain. But so how did you go about doing that? (laughs) And did the results shock you at all? Oh, boy, beyond shocked. I mean, beyond shocked. But you're correct. I mean, certainly, uh, narcissists fear the risk of exposure. But first of all, who knows if they really know that they're narcissistic? You know, I'm not really sure. Mm. So how that came to be is that my husband and I, well, he would always constantly tell me how miserable he was. He was very miserable living in this country. You know, he's tired of the government, tired of the, you know, Citizens United or, you know, this, that, the invasiveness of this and the corruption and, you know, the stupid people and, all, you know, everything was a complaint. We wanted to move out of the country where it would be so much better. So we decided to move to Panama and we built a house on an island off the coast of Panama. It took us almost eight years to build this beautiful custom house with stained glass and carvings and indigenous hardwoods and whatnot. So I want to say about a year and a half before we were going to retire, and move there, his behavior really escalated. I mean, it was bad, but it was so much worse. Picking fights, twisting words, blame shifting, avoidance, you know, starting fights and then leaving the house and running out of the house or dissociating or all kinds of crazy, angry moments that were just one after the other, abandoning me and all kinds of crazy stuff was going on the last year and a half. And I told him, I said, I'm terrified to go to Panama with you. You're you know, you're just acting crazy. And he would say, well, it's, I'm under so much stress. You know, I'm working two jobs. And, you know, when I retire, everything's going to be better. When we go to Panama, everything's going to be so great. going to live at the beach and we'll be happily ever after. We'll be swinging in a hammock and our relationship will be great. And they call that future faking. Anyhow, so that's kind of what happened leading up to the psych report. Because his behavior had escalated and was so frightening, I said to him, I'm not going to Panama with you. I don't feel safe. Like, you're acting crazy. I'm distressed. I said, let's go to marriage counseling. Now, it certainly wasn't our first marriage counselor. It was probably our seventh marriage counselor. But this time, I chose a much older man that I thought maybe would seem like a father figure to Fabio. Fabio's father had been a federal judge and was a very formidable force in his life. So I thought this guy might treat this guy with a little more respect than he would a younger or a woman or something like that. Well, so we go into our first session, have a little conversation with the guy. We go back for a second session. He says, something doesn't add up here. You can seem like really nice people. Let's do psychological testing. And I think Fabio was trapped in that moment. What he's going to say, uh, her, not me. So it wasn't yeah. my idea. So this guy gave us, you know, several hundred questions to answer. 
And I think maybe Fabio thought that he could punt the test. You know, he's so smart and arrogant. He can show that he's, you know, I'm a cool guy. Fortunately, those tests really can't be punked. You know, there are false negatives and double positives and things like that, that if you answer a question one way in one section of the test and another way in another section of the test with a different wording, they'll, they cancel each other out. So it came back, everything, sociopathic, sadistic, arrogant, depressive, suicidal. And there was a narrative that said basically that this person, Fabio, has no capacity for love or tender feelings and actually derives uh, great pleasure from hurting other people. And that was written right in front of me. Your husband derives pleasure from hurting people. And I had to believe it at that moment. It's written right in front of my face. And that's when things started to come together and I was afraid to go to Panama. So that's when the big narcissistic discard happens. The minute you're onto them, they're gone. So my husband went to Panama ahead of me and filed for divorce and brought a different woman there. So my husband has a different girlfriend after 20 years of marriage living in the house that I built with him in Panama. Right. So was he told this at the same time you were told? Yes, sort of. The way it worked is we each took our separate tests and then we each had a private meeting with the psychologist afterwards, actually the psychiatrist afterwards. And I could talk about mine and his, and he could talk about, you know, both of ours as well too. So I don't know what happened in his meeting. He didn't know what happened in my meeting, but therapist said to me, I wouldn't go to Panama if I were you. He could kill you in dissociative rage. Don't go. And I was like, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. And then I went, hmm, maybe not. Because another thing that narcissists will try to do is isolate you from friends and family so you don't have a support system. And that's when I came to realize Panama is awfully far away from my support system. Sure is. Yeah. So I couldn't go. Okay. Couldn't go. So despite his diagnosis as a sociopath <laughs> and with all the signs despite of covert it. narcissism, yeah, <laughs> you stayed with him after that, yes? Yeah, I kept trying to fix, make it work, believe him. I didn't want to give up on everything that I had worked for, my entire house and life, 20 years with this 20 man. years. Yeah, but in the book, you describe yourself as, as codependent at the time. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that it was your codependency that kept you with him, or was it something else? I come at codependency a little bit different than other people do, but I certainly, my behavior is completely codependent. So a lot of people who are codependent, they'll say, and this is what I don't identify with, that they have a low self-esteem or they have fear of being alone or fear of, you know, fear of everything, you know, fear of taking care of themselves or being independent or whatnot. I never had that. I ran off to California by myself as a teenager and made it in the music business. No low self-esteem. You know, even when my parents ignored me, I never thought to myself, I'm flawed and not lovable. I thought to myself, well, they're a bunch of jerks, you know, like I never really thought, <laughs> I just thought I'm cool. And I think that's because I had friends, you know, I was very, very lucky that I had little girlfriends when I was a little girl. It was a, a girl that, you know, got invited to skip rope with girls or, you know, go over their houses and things like that. So I always thought I was okay. But my behavior is completely codependent. I think of myself, I hope this doesn't come off wrong, but I think I'm Mother Teresa, honestly. I just want to fix all the little broken things and help them. Maybe that takes the focus off me and doing my own work about myself or, you know, owning my own issues or whatnot. But if I can fix other people, somehow that makes me feel good about myself. 
It's good to give and help and whatever. Those are good things. It's good to be self-sacrificing. That's what I learned from the generational trauma. Self-sacrifice is a good thing. No, it's not. (laughs) It's just not, right? It's not. So yeah, I was getting something out of it. I thought if I am self-sacrificing and I am here to love this unlovable person, that makes me a better person, okay? It sounds like that was sort of like your purpose at the time, like that that was fueling you. And it wasn't just him. I did that. I had a children's music school that I owned with him for 10 years. And all the little kids that were having the worst time in their teen years, and you know, that's a lot of them, especially now, I would have them in my office and talking with them for hours and hours about their issues and how I could help them and whatnot. And, you know, that was just more of the same. That's just me not growing and helping myself and and addressing and looking at the things I needed to work on about myself. It's me being outwardly focused. And that's codependency. Narcissists are self-focused. Codependents are other focused. So those two types, personality types will come together, right? But it's nothing but toxic, nothing but toxic. Agreed. I yeah, completely agree. And I think it's like it sometimes with the code, unlike narcissism, though, codependency, you can use it sometimes, like you said, with the teens that you were kind of coaching for good and not evil. So it's not as easy to pick up because you're just like, well, I'm just a giving person or I just want to help. And it's not until it's totally that screws you over and usually at the hands of somebody else that it becomes clear. So I don't think it was in any way abnormal for you not to pick that up until you realize the full picture of everything else that is going on. So I guess, and fortunately, I don't want to say make that sound bad, but at some point, Fabio, and once he was in Panama, did because you you y'all essentially separated and you let him go on, but you still mm-hmm. kept trying to work on things. But he did eventually discard you. So can you possibly, because you have this experience, explain to our listeners what a discard is and how it happened in your relationship? Yeah, it's uh, it'll take you to the ground. You know, if you're with somebody, I was with somebody for 20 years and anybody, you know, has been in any kind of a relationship with a narcissist for a period of time, I don't know, months, years, whatever, you know, you're seeing a false person, you know, you're seeing people are falling in love with this, you know, wonderful false person. But whenever you either, you know, get hit to their passive aggressive remarks, or maybe their sneaky behavior that's happening, you're going to get discarded because you are no longer useful to the narcissist. Your usefulness to the narcissist is, do you make me feel good about myself? You need to make me feel better about me, right? So as soon as you're not doing that anymore, you're discarded. So with Fabio, he went to Panama ahead of me. I was afraid, you know, to go down there. And I kept telling him, I want you to calm down. I want you to like settle down for like six months or so. Maybe you'll miss me. You know, maybe you will be happier in Panama, like you said you would, and then I can join you. And my plan was to go down there maybe for a month or so and see how it went. Thankfully, that didn't work out because in a month, he could have been on his best behavior for that month, right? They can do Mm -hmm. it. They can turn it off and on. You know, they know exactly what they're doing. And I know that because they're doing different things in front of different people. They're treating people at home a certain way and people out in the public a certain other way. So 
while I was trying to work it out and trying to be hopeful about going down there to be with him in six months and hoping that everything that he had said to me was true, that he was, you know, remorseful about behavior and didn't want me to be afraid of him. And he wanted us to have this happy life and stay together. Well, that's what he's saying to me. On the side, he hired a lawyer for $5,000. I actually found the $5,000 credit card payment on one of our joint credit cards. And I said, why did you hire a lawyer? And he goes, well, that's just in case you divorce me. Well, God, how, how stressed and I feel foolish now because he obviously had everything going. You know, he had a lawyer and he was getting everything ready to go. Next thing mm-hmm. I know, TV channels all have the passwords are all changed. My phone doesn't work. My easy pass doesn't work. This doesn't work. I go to Costco to pick something up. I don't have a membership anymore. It's like, boom, 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 boom. It's just like, you're getting, I mean, they're like reeling the whole thing in and then they shut the door. It's over. They will never speak to you again, ever. You're invisible. So my husband has never contacted his stepson of 20 years since he left, never said goodbye, nothing. So that's it. On December 4th, I think it was that same year, 2018, I got an email from him and it was this cold. Reluctantly, I had to file for divorce. Reluctantly. <laughs> it's like almost like a Hallmark reading card. Reluctantly, I had to file for divorce. It was, yes, I just happened. Coming. I should have. And look, in retrospect, I'm glad that he did. I would never have divorced him. I'm so freaking stubborn. I'm going to help him, not a quitter. You know, I was told not to be a quitter as a kid. Don't be a quitter. Well, guess what? Sometimes it's it's good to quit things that are not healthy for you. You can't just go with don't be a quitter, right? Quit things, make choices for yourself in your own self-interest, right? And I don't mean that like in a narcissistic way. I mean, check in with your feelings and say, am I okay with this, right? Right. That's all you got to do. Just am I feeling good here about this situation? And if the answer is no, then, you know, respond accordingly. Yes, exactly. And right after you got that email, reluctantly, I had to file for divorce. Once you were officially divorced, you started the journey to heal from the narcissistic abuse that you endured. Can you describe for our listeners, what were some of the major mental and physical health side effects that you experienced? And how did you begin to heal from the experience? I feel like I must be one of the strongest people on the planet. I call myself a weeble. Weeble. We wobble, but we don't (laughs) fall down. You could do anything to me. I want to say the worst thing that happened to me, besides the fact that my face is paralyzed on this side as a result of getting Lyme disease and being hospitalized, but that's a whole nother thing. I'll get to that in a second. So I think there were a few bad things that happened to me, but the worst thing, the most debilitating thing was I couldn't sleep. Couldn't sleep. So I ended up taking sleep medicine so I could sleep. And that's toxic and it'll destroy your health. If you take sleep medicine for you know, years and years and years, it doesn't work anymore but I couldn't sleep without it because I had so much cortisol like coursing through my veins and so much like tension and anxiety and panic that I wasn't really aware of it. And Fabio used to say to me all the time, well, that's because of your job. Your job is stressing you out. I had jobs before I met him and sometimes they're stressful, but it would go away. It wasn't chronic. So this was a chronic stress. So when you're under a chronic stress for years and years and years, I had eczema, migraine headaches, weight gain, sleeplessness. 
I was in a car accident and the pain of the car accident would never recover because I'm not getting enough sleep. And then I was bit by a tick and I got Lyme disease. And then I got Bell's palsy from that. I was hospitalized. My face was paralyzed. Had surgery on my face to kind of lift this side up. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff had to happen. So it wasn't like your normal, you know, breakup in any way. It'll take you to the ground. So I was sick with him the entire time and I couldn't think straight. I couldn't read. I couldn't read a book. I couldn't even read an article on the internet. I would start to read like two sentences and I have to read it again and then again and then again because I couldn't comprehend it and I couldn't pull it all in. I couldn't watch a TV show. I couldn't listen to loud music. I used to love rock and roll music. I'd be like, I felt too prickly and too shaky, you know, and all of this is holding on that hypervigilance and whatnot, trying to survive and stay alive in this situation while my husband is constantly telling me it's external forces. There are things outside that are causing this because not me, Mr. Mild-mannered, cool, helpful guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Look at me being just so like normal standing in the corner with my arms folded. So it can't be me. And it never is them. You know, that's in their mind. It isn't, it isn't them. And they will at least go to their grave convincing you that it, it never was. So there really isn't any, any chance. So I guess an, one thing that really fascinated me about your story was that you did eventually reach out to Fabio's previous wife or former wife that was mm-hmm. before you and y'all became close friends mm-hmm. and you found out that she was not the crazy ex that he had kind of painted her to be. Mm-hmm. So how was meeting Laura and kind of, well, that was her name and discussing everything healing for the both of you. So healing and so validating, you know, so I hadn't met her before, you know, she was married to him for 13 years and I was with him for 20 years after. So that's 33 years of this person, this man in a relationship with women, all bad, you know, so that's a real problem. I feel the good fortune of not having any children with him. She did, you know, she had a child with him and he poisoned the child against her for the entire, their entire lives. And I believe they're starting to heal some of their relationship as well too now. And that makes me happy because I had a little bit of a part in that. But yeah, I called her up and we met for lunch and that lunch lasted four and a half hours. We had plenty to talk about. And she said to me, she goes, I thought he hated my personality. And I Mm. thought, I can't believe you just said that. I thought the same. I thought he hated like I was always just trying to cheer him up, make him laugh, you know, like entertain him. He seemed so miserable and dour and angry and negative all the time. Here I am dancing like the little ballerina in the box, like, hi, I can make you laugh and whatnot. And it didn't work. You know, I think, God, I I thought this is what he liked about me, you know, is that I was animated and playful. Well, maybe it was, you know, maybe that's what drew him to me is that I had all of this kind of happiness and this, uh, you know, friends and a positive attitude, something he didn't have so much, but he sure beat it out of me and he beat it out of her too. He uh, ridiculed her when she'd had a miscarriage and, you know, so much cruelty. And then, like I said, the worst thing he ever did was triangulated the daughter against her own mother, which is a crime against both of them, you know, especially the daughter. So it was validating and not a lot of people have been through a narcissistic relationship are fortunate enough to receive that validation. You know, people who don't see from the outside go, well, geez, he seemed like such a nice guy. Or, 
you know, it takes two to tango or, you know, you're not always that cool, you know, and you're not always that nice, you know, sometimes you're a little bit of a problem. And, you know, for people like us, we do like to take responsibility for ourselves. We feel like we're growing if we do that. Like, yep, I'm a part of this, you know, and I'm not saying that I'm not a part of it. You know, certainly my background made me primed to be taken advantage of by somebody like this. But I'm not 100% innocent. You know, I'm sure that I'm not. I'm sure I did things to instigate him or make him angry or even just not recognize certain things. I don't want to come off as a complete victim here. No, but here's the gag. You were not a victim, but you were victimized, period. And we come back a lot on this show and it all sort of reverts back to every single interview we do. It always reverts back to personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. And the thing that's different, different between you and the narcissist is that you want to take personal responsibility mm -hmm. because you want to grow. Like you said, a narcissist is incapable of taking personal responsibility. They don't know how to take personal responsibility. It's not in their brain. So, yeah, I mean, I love that you're still even today. You're like, I'm sure I did things that upset yeah. him. I'm sure I did things. But none of what you did, I can assure you, <laughs> justifies the kind of abuse you endured. And you are extremely detailed in your book, A Dark Force, and very eloquently lay out not only the narcissistic abuse, but the circumstances that essentially caused you to end up in a toxic relationship. Mm -hmm. What was your biggest hope for writing the book and writing the book? The book started out as a way to process what my experience, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. I wasn't even trying to write a book to get started. There are many wonderful gurus for narcissistic abuse recovery that I found on YouTube, people who are psychiatrists and life coaches that have been through this or help coach people through these horrifying experiences of being victimized like this. So one of my favorites and probably the best known is Dr. Romani. A lot of people know Dr. Yes. Romani. Oh, yes. Queen Romani. We are trying to get her on the show. We are, we're very close. Oh, <laughs> see, if you get her, I, I want to talk to her too. She is the guru. She knows it mm -hmm. all about narcissism and dissociative personalities like uh, borderlines and people like that. She really does understand their motivations and their behaviors. So she recommended in watching one of her YouTube videos, she recommended writing an ick list. She said, you know, so you don't forget all of the horrible things that happened or the way that you felt, things that made you feel icky, things they said, things they did you know, experiences that you remember. And by the time I had 400 things on my list, I went, your brain is there to protect you from trauma. This is why people block mm -hmm. out trauma, right? You block it out. You can't even remember it because your brain is there to keep you safe. So in writing it all out, it was so obvious how awful my relationship really was. So I extracted some of the worst things that I wrote and I wrote out paragraphs of, you know, fights that we had, really scary fights where I thought maybe I would be hurt in the process. You know, he never hit me, but it was always pretty close where I was like, oh, God, you know, just don't move. Don't move. Don't talk. Don't move. Don't talk. All right. Jesus. So in writing out these fights, that helped to get it out of my system. And it helped me to also realize how bad it was and what it was now that I'm not in the thick of it. And I let a few of my friends, maybe three of my friends, read what I wrote. And they all three said the same thing. They said, one, this isn't normal. What do I know from normal, right? This ain't normal. Right. Number two, please let us know some good things about this guy. Otherwise, we're going to think you're the problem. I'm like, good point. And then the biggest thing, all three said this too. What is it in your childhood and in his childhood happened to come together and create that toxic mess? 
And that's when I realized I needed to take it all the way back to my childhood and how I was raised and how that set me up to meet a person like this. I'm in, in ways, I had great fortune to not meet somebody like this until I was 40, right? I met some bad, I had some bad relationship choices, but somebody this bad, a lot of people at age 20 get picked up by a narcissist and it'll change your life forever. It'll pretty much, you know, if you have a child, you know, or children with a narcissist. So writing the book, when somebody said to me, my friend said to me, take it back to your childhood, that's when I realized I needed to put it all together to figure it out for myself. And that's when I realized my mom was a bigger impact to my relationship choices than I ever realized was before. And everything started to make sense. And then I realized how I could pull myself out of it, how I could repair myself and how I could recover and help other people. You know, because I see things about, like you were saying, Laura, we see overt narcissists on television and movies all the time. We see movie, movies about physical abuse, like what's that one, sleeping with the enemy mm-hmm. or big little lies. You know, there's a physical yeah. abuser, but a narcissist with a physical abuser. Or, you know, maybe some of our more recent presidents seem to be a bit <laughs> narcissistic. <laughs> in the overt style. And certainly, you know, characters like a Tony Soprano or a Don Draper or some of those other really narcissistic personalities that you see on TV who step on anybody, you're like, okay, so that's what a narcissist looks like. Well, my goal for my story is to turn it into some kind of a six-part limited miniseries so that I can help to illustrate for people what does this sort of slow, insidious, covert narcissistic behavior look like in a real relationship, you know, not a clinical study, not, you know, some questionnaires that people filled out, but a real relationship that lasted 20 years, because I talk to people that have been through this 20, 30 years before they realize what's wrong in their relationship. And if I can help anybody, especially young people to recognize what they say, what they do and how they act early in a relationship, Maybe we can save some people from having to go through this. You've just been through so much. And yet you mentioned earlier that you had this amazing, illustrious career in music and worked with or friends with some big names. I'll just drop some Steven Tyler, Sting, Robert Plant, James Taylor, John Bon Jovi. And you also opened up this children's music school called Rock and Roll After School, which taught kids to write and perform their own original song. So how do you think you managed to create and maintain your career and all of this while and be so successful while going through everything? I have no idea. Honestly, I think that I am, I'm a survivor. I'm a strong person. I'm a determined person. Perhaps my determination comes from wanting to prove myself worthy of being seen and heard you know, maybe I work harder and more diligently than some people, uh, other people do, because I have that need for that validation, the feedback, you're doing good, you're doing good, pat you on the head or whatever. And I think that comes from not receiving it as a child. I think when you receive that feedback as a child, where your parents say to you, oh, you're good at art, you know, you're good at this, or you're a nice child, or you're a smart person or whatever, the little feedback you start to develop a sense of self about what you're good at, especially if they're honest with you. So I didn't really have that kind of feedback. So maybe I was still looking for that kind of feedback from other people by proving myself worthy by working really hard. What is the first thing that you would say to someone who suspects their partner may be a covert narcissist or an overt narcissist? What's the first thing you would say to them? The first thing I want to say to everybody is that 
this is real and it exists. So that there are people in the world that don't have your best interests in mind right away. And the whole time they're interacting with you. So just realize that and, you know, learn to check in with your gut because if it feels a little off, probably is a little off. So certainly looking for those kinds of behaviors and those personality traits of arrogance, dismissiveness, passive aggressive, avoidance. If they take a long time to answer a question, my husband used to say, I'm thinking, I just want to give you a thoughtful response. No, he's not. He's thinking about what answer is going to best serve him. But I'm not aware because I take people at their face value. So very hard to recognize this kind of stuff. But educate yourself. You know, there are so many free resources on YouTube. I loved Dr. Romani and also uh, Lisa A. Romano was another one I watched, you know, on repeat over and over again, just to really understand, you know, the depth of this, where it comes from, how it manifests itself in a person and what it looks like in the real world. So I hope also read my book because in my book, you know, there are a lot of the phrases that they all say, those gaslighting phrases So perhaps I'm hoping that somebody reads my book and then if they meet somebody or in a relationship with somebody that says, I never said that, their little ears perk up and they go, oh, yes, you did. And they Mm -hmm. believe themselves instead of believe the other person. So if anybody's trying to deny your version of reality, that's a real problem. I hope everyone that has dated a narcissist or has been married to a narcissist can get to the point of indifference. Because I think that that's a very powerful place to be when they can no longer get to you. They can no longer affect you. That's correct. Anyone out here that's listening to Aaron's story, please go get the book. It's For sure. very good. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. Very, very I've, I've read it and I definitely used the word earlier, but devoured that book yeah. because... You know, it, well, for one, it was a lot of familiar feelings, but it was also mm. a, just a great look into just how real it is, that it's insidious, that it's it's not something that is going to jump out at you, that a lot of people, like I know we've been talking a lot about your childhood and people being primed for this. There's almost anybody can be a victim of this, probably how long they endure it or, or maybe necessarily try to keep fixing it. It might be different, but that I think that that was a big message that I kind of, you know, took away from reading the book. It was, it was very eye opening to also see a more covert, just, you know, operation. operation. Yeah. Covert (laughs) operation going on. Yeah. And it's intentional. That's, you know, one of my biggest things is it's, it's all intentional. That's the difference between a narcissist and a non-narcissist is non-narcissists still may do something that's fear-based. You know, they're afraid, so they may lie or they could cheat or they would say some, whatever, say something hurtful or hide something or whatever. It's people are human, you know, people are fearful and shame-based and flawed in many ways, but they don't mean to hurt and they may actually accept responsibility or apologize, you know, that's a non-narcissist. But a narcissist, it's intentional the entire time. They're trying to keep the upper hand so that most often it's like a fear of abandonment and a fear of being invalid, you know, with a narcissist. So if they feel as though they're invalid, if you would leave them, suddenly they're not worthy. 
you know, so yeah. they don't want to be left. So they're going to keep control over you. However, they can keep control over you. My husband wouldn't teach me how to use anything like a computer or cell phone or back up my computer. He used to make me sit with him while we would design things for the school, for the children's music school for hours and hours over Photoshop, grumbling and complaining and cussing. And I, I'd be like, well, why don't you just show me how to use this? Because then you don't have to sit here with me for four hours. We've got to do the camp ads or whatever ads, you know, that we're doing. And I'll take care of it, you know. And he would just like roll his eyes at me like, you're too dumb to do this. He didn't say that, but like, oh, no, you know, you couldn't do this. And then I would think, okay, well, I, I'm sure I can, but all right, well, you have it your way. Well, now that he's gone, I don't know, go over to my uh, TikTok or my Instagram. I designed everything on it by myself because I was capable of doing it, you know, but it will make you feel as though you can't live without them. You're not yep. safe without them. So you're dependent upon them when the truth is they're dependent upon you. In my husband's psych report, the word dependence came up on his report 17 times. Wow. Now you wouldn't think a narcissist is dependent. You would think they're arrogant. They don't need anybody. That's the game they're playing, right? But they're completely dependent on others. Otherwise, all of that self-loathing is turned inward. So they're going to project that onto you. Exactly. You're their supply. Yeah. And I kind of hate that word, but it's kind of true. It's like, yeah, I know. Yeah. I don't like I, the word I, that I was supply. If I was, yeah. I was grade A. I am grade A. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Work me up and drive me crazy and spin me around trying to fix stuff. And I bet that's totally entertaining. But, you know, <laughs> to my own detriment, to my own detriment to be me uh, with a narcissist. But I can smell them coming now. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. And it's all with the gut. It all happens with the gut. So you just have to slow yourself down. And when you feel a thing, go, what am I feeling? Is it jealousy? Do I feel as though I've been lied to? Like, what's making me feel bad here? And then proceed accordingly. Yeah. Well, I think that the book and, you know, obviously we're going to see a lot more of you out there, you know, are doing the Lord's work of just getting the message out. And and that's kind of one of the things that we, you know, like to do here is make people feel less alone and know that you're not crazy. (laughs) There is no normal. And that's not what we should be striving for by any means. But you also are not alone and and you're good through it. And you obviously were a survivor. So and are continue to be a survivor. So everybody go out and get the book. And we're not going to take up your entire afternoon, although we really could. But we do have a tradition on this show. After we talk about all this kind of intense stuff, we like to lighten it up a little bit. So I wanted to ask you, would you rather have unlimited first class airline tickets or never have to pay for food at restaurants? Never have to pay for food at restaurants. Really? Okay. The food, yeah, I guess first class food even on a plane is not all that good. So, you know. (laughs) Do most people pick the other? Most people pick traveling everywhere for free? We don't know. This is an exploration in and of itself. This is, we heard, you heard it here first. My favorite thing in the whole wide world to do has always been to have lunch with a friend. Always. Mm, I don't know what it is, but just one friend. 
you know, where you share and update each other. What have you been up to? How are you feeling? How are the kids? How's this? Whatever. I love that more than anything. You know, a group or a dinner party, it seems a little shallow. You're jumping from here to here and whatnot, or in a party or a crowd. My favorite thing is one-on-one connection with another person. And so crazy that I would pick somebody endlessly frustrating, somebody who is (laughs) desperately not to connect. Well, you had the last laugh because I have to say that three pieces of fatty tuna is a stupid decision for any meal, whether you eat it or not. So, you know, go Fabio, you go (laughs) eat your tuna. We don't care. But uh, we just honestly can't thank you enough for coming on here. We had just such a good time meeting you and we didn't even get into all the rock star lifestyle. So, you know, we'll... We'd love to have you back and, you know, just generally hope that you have a lovely rest of your afternoon. I hope you guys have a lovely rest of your afternoon as well. And I'm happy to come back at any time and chat with you about narcissism and or rock stars or whatever. All right. Well, have a good afternoon, Aaron, and we will talk again very soon. (laughs) (laughs) See you guys later. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks. So what'd you think? Aaron Riley is a survivor and is such a, we need her voice right now. We need her voice. We need her book. I was very moved. Even when we spoke off air after everything ended, she even gave more little nuggets of wisdom that were very powerful about narcissists. And I just felt I don't know. I was very moved yet enthralled by our conversation with her. Yeah. What did you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, like I I felt like I already knew her going into it just because I read her book and okay. felt like I was like all up in her business anyways. But, you know, it was really cool to see her just thriving like so much. And I'm telling you, and I don't we spoke about it at some point in the interview that she mentioned that she was. 63 years old and we both were like no there's no way she looks gorgeous yeah and i even mentioned at some point that she was living like this very enviable life of Mm -hmm. hanging out with rock stars doing awesome things we didn't even cover all the stuff that you know that she talks about in the book of they were going to concert backstage to all these concerts all the time and, and you know Fabio was getting to go with them and go to these things. And Mm -hmm. so you can clearly see all the perks that he was receiving and how little she was receiving. But, and even an off air, you know, she kept kind of saying, well, maybe, maybe I did put like, maybe some of this was my, my fault and maybe, and it's like, you will, I feel like after dealing with these kind of people still question yourself a little bit. You have to, because we as non-narcissists have empathy yeah. and sympathy and have the means to get to personal responsibility. We have the faculty to get there, that it's important to us. They do not. So we will probably for, you know, if anyone out there has ever been with a narcissist, I certainly have. And it's all of this stuff rang so true. And, and it's, it applies even to people you're not in a relationship with. Like I want to make that clear that they're out there and they do this to friends, family, right. You know, they usually pick a victim, but 
you know, if they don't have a supply, you know, children, they'll do it to their own children. And that's how the cycle begins. And that's one thing I think that it's really important that she is bringing to the table is showing in real time, like how generational trauma happens and how, you know, that it is important to, you know, go fix your, it sounds, it seems so woo woo and like the inner child and all this stuff, but it's like, no, like literally you need to go fix your inner child because if you don't, then your children are going to be, you know, suffering those consequences and it just continues. Well, she clearly did a very deep dive into herself because, and she relates it all back to her childhood and mm-hmm. how she was sort of, you know, left her own devices, you know, <laughs> yeah, as a child. And so when somebody like a narcissist pays you all this attention, you crave attention because you never got the attention you needed. And the fact that she's gone back and healed that inner child and now she knows, okay, this is not going to serve me. Yeah. This kind of a person is not going to serve me. But 20 years yeah. is a good chunk of your life. Right. And she said that she would have probably stayed with him. He's Forever. the one who, who filed. Yeah. But she said it was the you know best thing he ever did for her. Yeah. Cause it's a, it's actually a common theme is that most narcissists will not. And it's like something we learned from Tina from, you know, our first episode is that. Tina Swithin. Yeah. Yeah. That they most often will not actually go through with a divorce. They'll ask for one. They'll, they'll kick and scream about it and then they won't do it because they don't really want to lose you. They kind of need, still need you. But if they've moved on, like if they've found the next person or whatever, mm-hmm. then it's, yeah, let's reluctantly file for a divorce then. I mean, that was just reluctantly so. Reluctantly get out just, of here, Fabio. I know. Fabio. And it's, it's so It's so interesting how much our brains can, you know, twist, like it's basically justify what we know is ludicrous behavior. But at the end of the day, I agree with you. I think that she is just doing awesome work and there needs to be more of her and not necessarily more victims of this, but more people that speaking out about it so that, you know, that is something that isn't seen as like, oh, that that person is just a narcissist. It's like, you know, a flippant comment. It's like, no, if they're like actually have that going on, then they are not to be messed with. So agreed. I just really, you know, I love her. I think she's great. And I think that everybody should go and get the book, A Dark Force, 20 years with a covert narcissist. You know, it may just be really illuminating about some of the other confusing relationships you may have in your life that you just, things just don't add up. Right. Current. I thought what I took from the podcast was just listen to your gut. Listen to your gut. You know better than anyone. And we oftentimes so, you know. We ignore it, ignore, ignore. ignore. And so the fact that she was so, you know, that was one of her big things today too, was just like, listen to your gut. If it feels weird, it's weird. It's weird. (laughs) Yeah. If it's, if it walks like a duck. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Well, as always, it's so lovely to, oh, I I got to do the question of the day. Okay. So what was the question of the day again? Okay. So (laughs) would you rather have unlimited first class airline tickets or never have to pay for food at restaurants? Unlimited first class. And I'll tell you why, because I travel so much and with my job and to be able to be like, oh, it's always covered. It's always in first. Oh my gosh. Just the cocktail alone. Right. (laughs) I always like the upgrade is always worth it. 
it's always worth it. You think, oh, I shouldn't spend this extra 500 bucks or 700, whatever it is to upgrade. And then when you do, it's like, how did I ever not? Yeah, I can't go back there again. I can't. Don't make me go back there. Don't make me go back. I'm not typically, you know, overly bougie about things. You know, it's okay. Don't roll your eyes too much. But first class, I'm sorry. It's, yeah. I need space. It is the moment. <laughs> I don't want to be that close to you. It's, it's inhumane how is. close they've gotten these seats now in economy. Like you can't, in economy, like there's a couple of airlines you can't even, like you sit Move. down and your knees are touching the seat in front of you. Like they- I, we, when we flew down to St. John, I felt so bad for my dad because we flew economy, mm-hmm. not by choice. That was the only things that were left, but he's just sitting there and like his knees are like bent up and oh, I was dad. just like, Oh my God. Like I, I'm sitting there complaining, but I'm like, you know, at least my legs are able to yeah. extend, but no, yeah. I think, I think the cocktails, I think the space, I think the attention <laughs> the attention, the, the immediate the, the, attention, the, the, the warm towels. Yes. Just you know, a, there's only so many of you. So you're like, you get like a bathroom six, easier. Maybe, maybe, maybe eight. Yeah. There's, there's, oh, okay. I have to talk about this before okay. we get off of here. That flipping curtain that oh they pull gosh. between first class <laughs> and coach, that see-through curtain. Yeah. It is the most stupid. <laughs> don't look at us. That's what it's saying. Don't look it's at saying, us. And don't use our bathroom. And Go don't all use this bathroom. the way to the back of the Get back <laughs> plane. There. Yeah. That is just driving me crazy. And they've actually started like on my last flight, they say, okay, we are going to be locking the lavatories now before we land. And I'm really? like, they, so they locked the bathrooms just for so the people back. Could, <laughs> you know what? Up front. They probably you know didn't. What? I bet up front. <laughs> I bet you they could pee. They were wide open. They I could, mean, they could, as they were sliding in to the, I bet someone was in the bathroom. You, want, you can do whatever not, you want. Exactly. It's, it's company policy. They can't even look at you. They can't even touch you. And someone was thought. peeing with a margarita. I'm yeah. telling you right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It was so great to see you. And God, we just love talking about narcissism on this show. I know. It's so fun, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> All right. Have a great, have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye. Bye.